Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. It's time for more Guy Talk. I'm Bill Arnold, and I, in the last four minutes, just went out and filled their water bottles from the hose, and we're ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> you guys aren't getting fresh, fresh water, but from the hose is pretty good. We grew up on hose water, didn't you? Me. You? Tom? Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. I did, too. Yeah. Yeah. And look at us. I rode a bike without a helmet, too. That's the only way I wrote a bike, is a helmet. <laughs> All right. Guy Talk means this. We uh, answer questions to the best of our ability, and you send your question over. I know you've got one, so send it over, 877-933-2484. All right. To get things started, Billy Graham and Lowell Lundstrom, I knew Lowell, uh, asked people to accept Christ repeatedly, not just leaving it up to another person to water that seed. Why has the culture changed? Were Billy and Lowell wrong? No, we, God calls, in fact, he commands all men everywhere to turn to him, to repent, to believe. It is a call by God. So Billy Graham was simply stating from the word of God, God's command, God's call to believe in him, the one that, uh, that God has sent. Quick story, I was teaching biblical worldview in a high school uh, when Billy Graham died and I, I got to class that day, and I asked my students, seniors in high school, how many of you know Billy Graham died? And a few of them had heard of him, but they'd all heard of Billy Graham. But I asked, how many of you have actually heard him speak? And none of them had ever heard Billy Graham speak. And I said, I know what we're going to do today. <laughs> and I pulled up the, the YouTube, and I showed Billy Graham give one of his crusades it was actually his chicago one huge thousands of people i think accepted christ at this chicago event i can't remember the year 1972 maybe and nobody spoke the true gospel of christ with more authority and power than billy graham how did it affect the students oh everybody thought it was great usually the substitute teacher plays the movie (laughs) <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, one and done. Yeah. Out the door. But another comment uh, regarding this question is they wanted people to accept Jesus at the first day. And I think, well, maybe that wasn't the first day. Maybe the Holy Spirit had been working in their life for years, and it just appeared to be the first day. You know, I've always talked to people who feel um, that they neglected their responsibility of leading somebody to Christ um, at least they're not a Billy Graham or they're not somebody else, and they, they feel ashamed of that. But the fact of the matter is that from the very beginning, God knocks on our door and incrementally sends people along the way to bring you one step closer to seriously considering the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you may be one of those people. You may not be the person who led somebody to Christ on the plane. We always hear about those testimonies and, gee, we want to be a part of that. But you may have led them to that point where somebody else helps them to cross over. So everybody who actually has the privilege of leading somebody across the river to uh, a faith in Christ is built on the shoulders of many who preceded them by giving the message. So be faithful to whatever 
uh, mm-hmm. opportunity God gives you, even if it doesn't lead immediately to them receiving Jesus Christ. The immediacy of Billy Graham is is an important thing. I mean, it's not something that you want to put off because you don't know if you're going to be living today, the rest of the day, or even tomorrow. But the fact of the matter is God may call you to bring them one step closer to seriously considering the gospel. Celebrate that, that you're given that opportunity. And the Bible talks about that. It says one plants, one waters, one harvests. So we work together. It is a combination. And I think the, the where we break down on that, I know I worked on the last Billy Graham Crusade here in Minneapolis. And so I kind of had a little bit of an inside view. And uh, I know some of the people that were on part of his crusade for 45 years. More of them actually goes to my church. Billy Graham had a very strong desire for the church to disciple people. He knew that just getting somebody to say, I confess or I make a decision today is a good thing, but he wanted them to become disciples. The church is what bothers me. I don't think most churches have a concept of discipleship, and therefore we don't know what to do with people. And so we bring people to church, and we hope that they'll stick around. But quite frankly, you know, it's kind of like having a nursery in a hospital. When you have a nursery in a hospital, you better have some of your best people in there, and you better be attentive to those people. Where oftentimes new people come in, and what do we do? We tell them, hey, go out to the the narthex. We've got a coffee mug for you. And uh, (laughs) if you want to sign up for one of our classes, we'd be glad to have you. When that should be the most intense group of people, not intense of uh, badgering people. But who's going to call them during the week and say, boy, Jeff, I'm sure glad you were there. You know, Greg, do you know we got a men's group this Saturday, and we're going to be talking about this? We'd love to have you there. And understands that you you do that not once, not twice, but it's like sales. You do it 12 to 15 times. And those are the people that come back. And that's what Billy Graham really wanted. And I appreciate that. And that's what I believe we should be doing. God makes believers and God uses us to help them become disciples. Yep, exactly. There are several passages that got sent over to me. Uh, Mark fifteen twenty five is one of them. Uh, Luke twenty three forty four. They're making references to the time of day. And the question is, how did they know what time of day it was? You mean, how did first century people know what time of day it was? Yeah, and then have that recorded in Scripture. Uh, well, by the sun. sun we know dials. that when the sun is up high in the sky, it's yeah. it's midday. Mm-hmm. When it's low, it's, you know, when it rises. So you have the the the... Some of the descriptions of time, for example, Jesus' crucifixion, there are several references. Uh, this, the parable of the workers in the field, uh, it talks about time references throughout the day. So, yeah, the, the sixth hour, the, the, the tenth hour, the ninth hour, and so on, that's all related to sunrise and sunset. You can go back to the ancient Egyptians, and in their hieroglyphics, they already had a time system uh, where they could measure time. So measuring time has been around almost since the beginning of time. So when the scripture says that, it was within their context. That's how they kept time. But we can now translate that to our time and have a pretty good understanding of what that meant. Well, in ancient times, a sundial was used mm-hmm. um, far back as you can think of to help determine various hours of the day by just looking at the sundial. So that was their watch in many respects. And that, by the way, Genesis 1 says that's why God put them in the sky so that so the sun was to say to divide night from day and to let them be for signs for seasons and for days and for years and that's how we tell time all right in deuteronomy 24 it says a child shall not be put to death for the sin of his father 
And in 2 Samuel 12, it says that because of David's sin, God causes David and Bathsheba's first son to become sick and die. Can you help me understand this seeming discrepancy between these verses? Well, I don't, I don't see it as a discrepancy. The whole idea of that child being born out of an illicit relationship, that it wasn't the child's consequence, it was David's consequence for his sin. That child went to be with the Lord right away. So, I mean, who, who wouldn't want to do that? But the point is, is that it wasn't a condemnation of the child. It was a condemnation of David's relationship, illicit relationship. So, you know, the, the other scripture that you, you talked about, Bill, about that it's, it's not visited on to the next generation. I mean, we're all responsible for our own sin. We may end up living with the consequences of the sins of our ancestors. Mm-hmm. We may have consequences for um, a father who was uh, a sinner and, and was an alcoholic and uh, taught us at an early age to drink or to do whatever, so we end up dealing with the consequences of our father that way, but we are responsible for our own sin and not that of our fathers. All right. Any other comments? Otherwise, I'll move on. Well, yeah, there's a, I, was, I was just reading the passage, and we know that there's no, there are apparent contradictions in Scripture, but there are no real contradictions in Scripture. It's a, it's a, has to do with our understanding or interpretation of of different passages. It's kind of like the judging stuff that we were talking about in the first hour. Um, so any apparent contradiction should be able to be reconciled in some way. I think of the the man when when if we are to be responsible for someone else's sin. If you remember the story of Jesus and he's with his disciples and they see a blind man and the disciples ask him, "Is it because of this man's sin or his father's sin that this man is blind?" And Jesus says, "Neither." The, the common understanding in the first century was that all sickness and all disease was caused because of sin. And so we see this in Job. Job's afflictions, but, but from the supposed wise counsel of his friends, they basically kept saying, Job, it's because you have sinned, and that's why all these bad things are happening. And, and they did not have the luxury of reading Job chapter 1, that we know all these bad things came not because of his sin, but because of Satan working these things in his life. In the same way Jesus said of the blind man, it was neither his sin nor his father's. Uh, that caused this man to be to be blind. Remember, the sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous, and the rain falls on the evil and the good. So good and bad happen to the good and bad. The Bible has the simplest message in the world. It's the most complex book ever written. And what we need to understand by that is it has one message from beginning to end. It has one outcome. It has one Savior. But each book of the Bible is not like we read chapters in a book when we read a novel. There are snapshots of the Lord working at a particular time with his people under certain circumstances. And sometimes it's not easy to put snapshots together and get the full picture of what the Lord was doing or how that came out. So I agree with Jeff and Greg. There are no contradictions. I've never really found a contradiction in there. What there are are snapshots, and I don't always see the full picture when I read it. We do suffer the consequences of somebody else's sin. I mean, if you have a corporation who's dumping toxic waste into a river, which happens to be the water supply of the town's downriver, and people end up uh, catching cancer or something else because of what's happened with those toxins in the water. But it wasn't because they deserved it. It was because of somebody else's sin 
that we ended up dealing with the consequences. We were innocent, and it wasn't because, you know, like you were just using Job as an example and his counselors. It wasn't because of our sin. It's because of somebody else's sin. So we live in a fallen world. There are consequences that we're going to have to endure even though we didn't bring them about or we didn't deserve them. It's a fallen world. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, lots more Guide Talk. So send your questions, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome to the show. If you just climbed in your car, I hope you had a good day. It's Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Questions are welcome. 877-933-2484. You guys have been doing this show for a while. When you get home... Do you ever sit and think, oh, wait, wait, I misquoted scripture uh, or I misquoted the address of scripture? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. I did that yesterday. I I quoted. No. Yeah, I know. I know. know. (laughs) That can't be true. I was was quoting Exodus 14, 14, and I said it was Exodus 13, 13. So I was a little off. It happens. But I apologize for anyone listening yesterday, and I quoted... That incorrectly. I meant Exodus fourteen fourteen. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That's the verse. Yeah. And I said it was Exodus thirteen thirteen, and I was wrong. So I apologize. All right. Here's a question. My sweet seven year old son asked me this morning if the Bible is more important than people, or are people more important than the Bible? And I just sat there stunned for a minute. I told him I'd get back to him. Can you guys shed some light on this? <laughs> well, it's kind of like which side of your, the quarter is more important, the heads or the tails. Either way, it's the same thing. The Lord's focus is on people, and his focus comes through his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. So I don't see how you can really separate one from the other, because that is his heart, that people come to know him and become redeemed and walk with him. And to me, it's, uh, it's the two sides of the same coin. Well, I, the, the Word of God is all about relationships mm-hmm. and establishing relationships or restoring relationships. And so the Bible is simply a record of that. So, you know, I'd, I'd have to say if, if that child were to ask me that question, I'd say, well, it's people that are most important to God. That's why he revealed himself through his Word. Sure. Perfect. Yeah. God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for people, and that event is recorded in his word yeah. for people. Yep. This mom's going to have a very smart answer tonight. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Is the last trumpet mentioned in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty two the same as the seventh trumpet mentioned in Revelation eleven fifteen? No. It's not. The trumpets in Revelation are trumpet judgments poured out by God during the seven-year tribulation that will come upon the world. There's actually three sets of seven judgments in the book of Revelation. There's seven seal judgments, there's seven trumpet judgments, and seven vile judgments or bold judgments. The last trumpet 
in 1 Corinthians 15 refers to the trumpet at the rapture. The dead in Christ will, at the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So that is the trumpet of the rapture. Remember, trumpets in Scripture can signify different things. One of the things that they did was to proclaim judgment, uh, a trumpet judgment. But another thing they were used for was to gather God's people for different purposes. Uh, So you got to distinguish the different purposes for the sound of the shofar, the sound of the trumpet. And that's what is going on here. One is a call to gather. One is a call for judgment. All right. Nicely done. Uh, let's see here. If you are in a very troubled marriage and it's not going well, how do you give it to God? How do you do it? Well, there's a combination of things that need to happen. Number one, you need to, you need to bring in a third party that you trust who is a Christian because there is a tendency for one or two of the partners, whatever, whoever it is, the husband or wife, to speak for the other person or to tell only part of the story. And so the, the counselor, Christian counselor, needs to be there to try to discern that and say, but but Bill, I haven't heard from you. You're not telling me your perspective on this, or surely I need to have more from you coming on this. That's one. Number two, uh, there's a lot of pain in these relationships. So one thing I talk about with people is forgiveness. And why do we forgive? And we always do it because Jesus has forgiven us. And and I'm... And, Imagining here these people, let's say they go to church. They need to do that out of thankfulness. But third, and this is the big one, and I tell people I will counsel for free. I won't charge you a penny. But what I do want is that you've got to pray together every day for at least three minutes. And I demonstrate what that means. So, Bill, you get 90 seconds, and surely you get 90 seconds or whoever it is. You can't pray about your spouse. You can only pray about who you are before Jesus. And I've had people do that. Uh, for 30, 60, 90 days uh, that have really gone that long. And I have watched marriages get healed, Bill, mm-hmm. not because mm-hmm. I'm a great counselor, not because I'm a great psychologist, not because I was pulling out the best scripture passages. It gave the Holy Spirit room to work in their hearts, and they began to forgive and to build a relationship with one another. I don't care how bad the relationship is. I don't care what's happened, even adultery. When there is a willingness to really go before Jesus and deal with this, it is amazing what he can do. You know, there's a passage in Scripture in Ephesians 5. I actually did a wedding, and I I used this passage where it says, Wives, submit to yourself to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, remember, that's biblical submission, which is a good thing, not a perverted, distorted submission, which is a bad thing. But then it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I think one of the issues in marriages is that the husbands are looking at the wives' verse and saying, You need to do that. And the wife is losing out the husband and said, you need to do more of that. If you're a husband, look at the passage for husbands. You love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And if you're a wife, look at your passage that's directed to wives. Love your husband, submit to him as your own husband, as to the Lord. And both of you can look at verse 21 of Ephesians 5, which says, submit to one another then out of reverence for Christ. It's interesting because early in my ministry, I started to do a lot of counseling because we had a medical clinic involved with it. And so it was interesting how that worked. I had a woman come to me who was not a Christian, but she wanted counseling because she was tired of men. 
Okay, so I wanted to hear what she had to say, so I invited her, and she came in, and we talked, and she was, uh, I was only like 29, 30 years old. I'm nobody at this point. She was about 35, and she told me, she said, Pastor, I need to understand what's going on. I'm going through my fifth divorce. What's wrong with these men? (laughs) Now, the point is simple. Everybody's got problems, men or women, but she never saw an issue in herself. It was always the issue in the other people, and if we do that in marriage— you won't have a marriage. You've got to look at yourself primarily and bring that before the Lord. You know, I, I was speaking to a large group in Odyssey Arena in Belfast, a large group of men, and I challenged them in the arena. I said, I'm going to ask you to do something that many of you are going to shy away from because you may not have the courage to do it. And I said, well, maybe I shouldn't ask you at all. And then I hesitated. And I said, well, I think I will challenge you. Well, I don't think any of you are up to it. I don't think you've got enough courage to lean into your fear to do it. And finally, a guy stood up and says, tell us what it is. And I said, for the next three weeks, I want you to outserve your wife and expect nothing in return. Hmm. See every act of service to your wife as an act of worship to God. Expect not a pat on the back or anything else. The first thing she's going to wonder, what do you got to apologize for? <laughs> and then, but if you're consistent, is outserve your wife, because that's what Christ has done for you. Mm. And so, I mean, if you have a couple that are trying to outserve each other, that marriage has an opportunity to survive. <laughs> All right, nicely done. Good word. When you die, are you aware of what is going on with your family on earth? Is there anything in the Bible that talks about this? Well, I heard at a funeral once that when Bob died, he went to the great bowling alley in the sky and is looking down on us right now. So, You've but, read some, uh, many obituaries are like that. There, there are, yeah. and it's a common yeah. picture. I don't know that any of us want all of our relatives that have passed away and are in heaven looking down on this earth. Now, I think the picture from Scripture is clear that we we are aware, we're conscious, we are with the Lord. Paul says, absent from the body, but at home with the Lord. So I don't think this idea of soul sleep, which some will teach, is grounded in Scripture at all. So when you die, you're with the Lord. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, that is, you're with the Lord and aware. There's no passage that I can think of that says one way or another, but I don't think all of heaven is looking down. I think God sees the, the earth and the world and everything in it, but not everybody else in heaven. And it says there's going to be no more tears. There's going to be no more pain. I mean, if, if we were given an opportunity while we're in glory, looking down on what's happening in the world around us to our relatives, that can bring up some painful emotional things. But the scripture says we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. There'll be no more pain, no more sorrow. So I don't think we're going to have an opportunity to look down on what's going on here. All right. Tom Parrish, anything? Well, when I fell in love with my wife, Jan, 50 years ago, I loved my mom and dad, loved my brother and sister, but I could care less what they were doing. I just wanted to be with her. And I have the funny feeling it's going to be that way in heaven when we're with Jesus. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Good illustration. And thank you for saying that. All right. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Lots more Guide Talk. Send your questions over. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. We're back with Guy Talker, guys who talk and... Because this is our last 30 minutes, what analogy would you use for we're in the ninth inning or the fourth quarter? What would you say with 30 minutes to go? We're in the last half hour. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a two-minute warning. You think it's a two-minute warning? Two-minute warning. All right. All right. Greg, would you want to chime in on that? No, I'll pass. (laughs) All right. Revelations 20, verse 15. And I'll tell you what that is. And that is, if anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, the question is, can this happen to any believer who still struggles with sins? Well, all believers struggle with sins. You know, that's not the issue. The issue is we we still need to keep coming back to Jesus and laying down our sin. Not so that we can get saved, but so that we can be in a right relationship with him and be used by Jesus and the Holy Spirit to build the kingdom of God. So I don't think sin is the issue here. Yeah, I I totally agree. This is for unbelievers. This line comes in the description about what is called the great white throne judgment. This judgment is for unbelievers. Uh, They are there because they did not believe and they aren't saved. Those who are saved... The sheep know their voice. Uh, They are sheep with a shepherd. Uh, They have confessed Christ before men, and so they are his. You are united with Christ. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. I mean, there's lots of different ways that the New Testament proclaims the moment you believe you are included in Christ and uh, sealed with the Holy Spirit for how long? Forever. But but let me just finish. But there's a final judgment for unbelievers Uh, By the way, this book is called The Lamb's Book of Life. Mm -hmm. Those who are saved are belong to the Lamb and have life and so are in the book. Those who do not are not in the book. But we have to also understand the perspective is is that we have um, been imputed Christ's righteousness. We've been given his righteousness. Those sins were paid for. God knew past, present, and future sins that we were going to commit, and they were all nailed to his son's cross. And it says in multiple places in Scripture that God puts our sin behind him. He, he blots it out. So if we're reminded of our sinfulness all the time, that's not of the Lord. That's of the enemy who wants us to remember the failures of our past, and God wants to bring us to the victory of our future. And some will say, well, wait a minute here. If you're then saved, can I then just go do whatever I want? And Paul actually foresees this question when he talks about this great salvation, Romans 5, the grace of God and this wonderful salvation. Romans 6, verse 1 says, because I'm saved and all my sin has been forgiven, shall I go on sinning so that grace may abound? And Paul answers his own question by saying in the King James, God forbid, you've died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? So God says, no, I've made you holy. Now live out this holiness. But when we miss the mark, Tom, as you said, every Christian still sins. The only person who ever did it perfectly was Christ himself. I'm going to use a sports analogy so you guys can correct me. Salvation is like the kickoff of a football game. We're now in the game. We're on the team. We're there with the crowd. We're part of, you know, the, the, 
first quarter, second quarter, third and fourth quarter, the whole thing. Our goal is to win. What are we trying to win? We're trying to win in the sense of letting Jesus take control of our lives right now so that we can reflect him to a lost world. So we're not getting saved just to go to heaven, although that's a big deal. Hmm. We're being saved so that we can become his disciples and make a difference in this world for him. Does that make Bill the referee then in that It probably does. Yeah, I can see that. I don't know if I trust him. (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) All right, uh, gentlemen, during worship, should we focus more about who God is than what he has done, or does it matter? Why not both? I mean, part of the appreciation of who God is is us experience what he has done for us. So, I mean, it's a matter of, I, I agree, it's, it, it's really both. I mean, the act of worship is simply acknowledging God's involvement in your life. It's being grateful for what he's done in and through you. It's um, an appreciation for his majesty. Um, so worship, it, it, there isn't a demarcation there. It's, it's all one thing from my perspective. You just described some of his character and some of what he's done for us, right? Mm-hmm. So we sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? That's his character. But, but yeah. we also sing things like what I think is one of the greatest lines in any hymn ever written. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole. It is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. It is well. It is well, well with, with my soul, soul. Yeah. right? Okay. That's what he's done mm-hmm. for us. Yep. All right, uh, gentlemen, is there a difference between envy and jealousy? Can you describe a difference biblically? Envy and jealousy. That'd be a it's, tough one. That's a tough one. Well, jealousy, when you're jealous, you're, you're directing your frustration at a person. Because they have something you don't. When you envy, you may not be directly going after them. You're more interested in the object. Mm -hmm. Either one can become a problem, depending on how far you let it go. Now, when I first heard Billy Graham preach, I envied his preaching ability. I wasn't jealous. I didn't want anything to happen to him. I didn't want to take it away. I wanted to be able to preach like him. And so one of my goals has been to develop that over time. And that part of the envy is good. But when the envy is, I want to take it away from him and have it just for myself, that's absolutely wrong. Here's an interesting comment. Although many people consider envy and jealousy synonymous, they actually have distinct meanings. Envy is the painful feeling of wanting what someone else has, like attributes or possessions. If you're jealous, you feel threatened, protective, and fearful of losing one's position or situation to someone else. Wow. I like that because one of the things that I was looking for, and I can't find it, God, it says in Scripture that God is a jealous God. And what does that mean? I think the Hebrew is Elkanah. God is jealous. If you saw your wife getting hit on by another guy, would you go over and defend your wife and stand up that says, no, this is my wife, right? That's God being a jealous God, one who's going to stand up for his people. He always, always stands up and fights for his people. And in that sense, it doesn't say in Scripture anywhere that God is an envious God, right? right. And so I liked your definition or your distinction between mm-hmm. those two words. All right. Nicely done, gentlemen. All right. First Thessalonians 
chapter 5, verse 22, says, abstain from all appearance of evil. What does that mean? Well, there's lots of passages in Scripture where God calls us to be holy. What kind of lives ought you to live? Why do you continue to live like you used to live when you were lost, when you were a pagan? Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. Be holy just as your heavenly Father is holy. Um, Whatever you do in word and deed, do it all as if doing it for the Lord. I mean, we should be people as Christians who are eager to do the right thing. Uh, at all times, it's never wrong to do the right thing, and 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 that includes even the appearance. It, what's the passage, uh, guys? Help me out. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that they can accuse oh, you of nothing, yeah. but they see God's light in you and and will praise your Father in heaven. Or so I'm paraphrasing that that passage, but I think that's what what Paul was talking about here to the Thessalonians. Live what, such good lives that you look. When you're a witness on a trial, one of the things the opposing counsel is going to try to do is discredit the witness. We should not, by our own actions, discredit our testimony, our witness. But we should live such good lives that our witness becomes that much more powerful. I'm looking at the Greek word here, just for the fun of it. Please. For abstain in verse 22. And it means to have it in full what is due or is sought. And I think as most of us think of abstain as staying away from, which is a good thing to do. But what it's really saying here is, instead of just abstaining, fill yourself up with the things of the Lord so that the evil can't even crowd in. Maybe we should talk about how do you define evil? Because don't even have the appearance of evil. So if I make a $2 bet at the horse track and somebody from church sees me, do they go, whoa, look at him, he's evil. He's gambling. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't think you can have an understanding of evil without an understanding of goodness. Because um, evil is the absence of goodness. So anything that is not good from, in our case, what we're talking about here is, is from God's perspective, is evil. There isn't an in-between spot or a shade of gray in between the two. It's either good or it's evil. That's at least my. Yeah, I know. I know people that grew up in the in some of the houses where the you know there was no cards, there was no movies, there was no dancing, there was none of these things because you know those things are of the devil, right? Kind of thing. And and the risk is of that kind of attitude is it becomes legalism, yeah. right? And it's all about the heart. But we we don't want to put any stumbling blocks in front of our brothers. We don't want to have the appearance of using our freedom. Right to indulge in things of this world, um, so it is. It, it look, we should we should be living according to God's word and doing what is right. That means we should be good citizens. We should be paying taxes. We should be obeying the laws. We should be doing what is right in this world. I think that's what God would. So we don't harm our witness. I think is the ultimate reason. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. First John four verse one. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Is there a question there? Yes. Uh, How do we recognize what a spirit is? Ooh, I've just encountered a spirit. Do I believe this spirit? And then how do I test it? 
to see whether or not it's from God. Well, the spirit isn't going to show up in the sense of, you know, it's a floating object that's standing there in front of you and talking It'd be helpful to you. if it did. <laughs> Sometimes. But what the spirit is going to do, what the d- demonic is going to do, is try to get you to think in a different direction or to justify some behavior or to lust after something. And that's really the battle that we all fight in one way or another. And, you know, you go to the Internet today, even among the Christians on the Internet— there is so much diversity there in terms of what the scriptures are saying, what the scriptures are doing, what's happening right now in the world, that it's almost confusing. And I wonder, how are so many Christians getting so many different messages, some of them even contradicting one another, unless there's a lot of confusion going on? Mm-hmm. And the Lord is not the author of confusion. Satan is. So we have to be very wise and everything you hear on the internet, everything you read, everything you do, you've got to go back and check with the Word of God and see what it says. And don't let, whether it's a pastor, you know, I, I tell my congregations all the time, look, I've, I've, I've shared this message with you. This is what Scripture says. Go home and check it out for yourself mm-hmm. because I'm just a human being. Yeah, but they expect you to be the guy that knows. Uh, just like when people come to our, the show, they expect us to know. We're doing the best we can. I get it. We're still human. And that's why everybody is responsible for themselves. You know, when I stand before the Lord, I can't say, well, you know, Lord, it was Bill's fault. Yeah, you go blame it on me. I think that might work. (laughs) You don't think you're not getting pizza now. (laughs) (laughs) We're not even going to get water now. Way to go, Greg. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So so it goes on to say in in 1 John 4, it talks about the spirit, the spirit of the Antichrist, and then what is the the Antichrist or the spirit of the Antichrist. It says everything, everyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So we're talking about truth claims or truth statements. Um, There's a passage in Deuteronomy, I believe, that says behind every idol, there is a demon. There's a liar behind every false religious system and every lie that's out there. So I think what what the exhortation is here is to know the truth, understand the spirit of lies that comes from the Antichrist, uh, that opposes Christ, that that teaches that Jesus is not of God uh, versus those that are from God, truth claims from God. I found it interesting. Years ago, um, treasury agents were trained how to identify counterfeit um, currency. But in, in the training, I think if I remember correctly, it was 22 or 25 weeks. For 90% of the time, up to week 19 or 20, all they were allowed to handle was the real thing. Yeah. And then when they started to integrate in counterfeit bills, they were able to recognize them right away. Why? Because they had been working so long in the truth, it was obvious what the counterfeit was. See, as a pastor, what I worry about is, and I I love that analogy because that fits perfectly. What do people get out of church in the week? Maybe if you go to Sunday morning and Sunday school, you tie up two and a half, three hours. Maybe you go to Wednesday night Bible study, which is great. I'm all for that. Well, that's that's four hours. Maybe you listen to Guy talk for a couple Maybe you listen to Guy talk, and and that's worth 80 hours right there. (laughs) But, But in the whole week, we have more other influences working on us most of the time than we do with the really the church, the believers. And one thing, I we had a prayer meeting at our church. Uh, once a month we now fast and pray. And, and I made a statement, and I thought of, I, it was kind of off the cuff, and I had to think about it. I said, you know, it's great to pray at home, and I want you to pray at home, and I want you to pray sincerely. But if you want power, we need to pray together. Now, not that you can't get power on your own, but it is the body together 
that makes all the difference in the world. And too often we're not together. We're going all these different directions, and I wonder where people are getting their strength from. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books. I like it. All right, we'll be back with more Guy Talk in just a minute. If you've got a question, send it over, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. More time for Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. If you have a question, send it over. 877-933-2484. Jeff Redorn, I'm looking your direction. Would you explain Revelations 20, verse 2? It's that dragon. What is all that about? Uh, let me read it here really quick. And, and he says, sees the dragon, the that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. Yeah, so when Jesus comes back, so the context of Revelation here in chapter 20 is immediately following the second coming of Christ, who comes riding on that white horse, followed by the armies of heaven, and he comes down to earth and establishes his kingdom. Well, first, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, destroys all the armies of the world who are looking to destroy Israel. This is what is commonly referred to as Armageddon or the Battle of Armageddon. And then the next thing he does is he seizes this dragon, this one, this deceiver, the one who is out in this world looking to kill and destroy, and he seizes him and he throws him in the abyss abyss, uh, under chains for the next thousand years. And then Jesus establishes his thousand year reign, his millennial reign on earth. This is the time when, remember, we pray in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus will rule and reign as king of kings and lord of lords for a thousand years with Satan bound. But guess what? There's still in in the the People who are still in their earthly bodies, remember the church has been glorified, we're not in our earthly bodies, and those who are still in the earthly bodies, there is still sin. Mm-hmm. There's still sin, and you go, well, wait a minute. If Satan is bound, how in the world can there be sin? And I, you just have to look at man's heart. Jeremiah talks about that man's heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Well, the sources for temptation aren't just Satan. It's the world and the flesh right. and the devil. Mm. So people are still dealing with flesh. So even though they're living in an ideal environment, here you have Jesus Christ right there, yet we still, because of our sinful nature, we're still, people are still, if they're, if they're living during that period, they still have a sinful nature that they're having to contend with. And so, but even in that case, even uh, people are going to be challenged by their own sinful nature, their own predisposition, their own bias towards sin, even with God in front of them in Jesus. People, really quick, people have asked me in my end times class, well, wait a minute, why in the world, if Jesus is right there with them and ruling as king of kings, can they possibly ever sin? And it's like, well, you mean like when God showed the Israelites uh, his power and destroyed Pharaoh's armies right before their eyes and appeared to them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire and, and met him on the mountain and then they made a golden calf. And Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he was who he says he was. And why didn't everybody believe? Well, 
Not everybody believed. It's going to be the same way during the millennial reign. Here's an important Bible principle if you look at this verse and something we need to understand. We study the Word. Uh, I was preaching on Genesis quite a while ago, and I mentioned the serpent. And I said, you know, Satan himself came and tempted Eve. And I had somebody come up and say, it doesn't say that. It says the serpent. I said, yes, but the, the serpent is Satan. Show me in the Bible. So I had to go look. <laughs> Here is the passage that puts it all in one category, puts it all together. The, the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And that's when I'm saying... There's the, no mistaking who he's talking about here, no right? No mistaking. Yeah. And that's what I call the umbrella principle in the sense that you're looking for the most complete passage on, on a topic like that. Who is this Satan? Well, this passage in Revelation gives us the full picture that he was in the garden and that he's the one that's going to be thrown into, you know, the thousand years. And it's going to happen. Never forget, the, the enemy is a defeated foe. His fate is sealed. He will be thrown into that abyss. And by the way, once then he's released for a short while for one last rebellion. And then ultimately he will be thrown into the lake of fire. All right, gentlemen, I've got part two of that question I asked about time of day. This is about the night. This is part two of the same person who asked this question, and I sort of passed, passed it off because I thought it was the same question. But in uh, Matthew fourteen twenty five, it says, And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And in Mark <clears throat> six forty eight, it says, He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them, Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. It was, he was about to pass by them. The question is, how do they know what time it was? And how is it recorded? Uh, well, they. Mm-hmm. I, I think if you took your cell phone and you put it away for a week and you just told time by the stars and the sun and, you know, what's going on, I think you could determine what, I. you know, I, I'm a hunter. I know when the sun is about to rise. You can start hunting deer 30 minutes before sunrise. And you know when that is, right? In the same way they know by the, by the movement of the heavenly bodies what the first, second, third, fourth shifts are, just like you see the sun in the sky when you can tell what time of, time of day it is. So I don't... I, I, I think I understand what the question is asking, but I don't know that it's that hard. We just rely on our phones. Yeah. We have no idea uh, where the constellations and, and stars should be in the sky at any given night for that given month. But I have a feeling that most people in the first century did. Nicely nicely said, Jeff Redorn. All right. What are your thoughts on the hell, fire, and brimstone style of preaching? Greg? Hell, fire, and brimstone. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean... It interpreted means somebody who um, is an exhorter, somebody who is strenuous about the gospel, somebody who um, exhorts us to live a different life. So if, if that's what's meant by hellfire and brimstone, uh, sometimes people need to be shocked into reality. Sometimes they need to understand the starkness of, of light and dark. They need to understand the insidiousness of sin. I mean, it was Spurgeon who had this, this amazing sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I mean, he, he could be considered to be a hellfire and brimstone preacher. So, but there's a derogatory side to that of, of somebody who is always um, stern and never showing the mercy of God. If that's what the person is asking about, then it says that we're to give a defense for the hope that in us with gentleness and respect— 
but it doesn't mean that we don't seize the urgency of the moment and demonstrate how important it is. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, the the guy walking down the street that says the end is near, you're going to burn in the fires of hell, uh, he's right. <laughs> right? He's He's right. Lost people will be thrown into the lake of fire. We were just talking about that judgment that's coming upon lost people in the world. At the same time, it's also true that God so loved the world yep. and God loves you. What should we lead with as Christians? God's wrath or God's love? Um I think love is a much more powerful message. Well, it's kind of like raising kids. You know, if you've raised children like I have and I'm, we all have here, you can't yell at them all the time. You know, sometimes you've got to talk gently to them. Sometimes you've got to listen. I think preaching is the same way. What is the Lord leading you to do with this passage in this context, in this setting for these people? And not everybody has to be yelled at because nobody wants a fire and broomstone preacher at their wedding. You know, it just doesn't go over well, you know, when they're asking vows. So there's a balance, and you need to understand the balance. What's that passage? Grace, uh, truth to the proud, grace to the humble, right? I also think it matters on your audience. Mm-hmm. What is their attitude? Some of them may, may be moved by a message of, hey, you're, you're going to, you know, the lake of fire. Yeah, you take a look at John the Baptist. Would he have been considered a hellfire and brimstone preacher? Right, right, right exactly. Would have. Yeah. But others, the you know, the the humble, maybe, you know, and that's what the law did. The purpose of the law was to convict people of sin and their need for forgiveness. All right, that wraps up our show for the day. Thank you, gentlemen. Guy Thank Talks, you. always a pleasure in my week. I hope it is in yours as well. Have a great night. I'm looking forward to spending time with you tomorrow. If you missed any of today's show, check out the podcast. I think you'd be glad you did. MyFaithRadio.com. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.